The first thing they did was a mammogram, which confirmed this looks suspiciously like cancer. And they did both breasts to be sure there were no surprises in the other breast, which there weren't. After that, the next thing they do is an ultrasound. And the ultrasound can tell you, is it solid? Is it liquid? Is it jagged? Is it smooth? And the way I thought of it was smooth, okay, jagged, yikes. You know, liquid, okay, solid, yikes. And basically I got double yikes. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Boomer women. Are we wise women? Are we mavens? Are we crones? Hell yeah. And we're also still curious, fun-loving, interesting, the list goes on. This podcast is for you. My guests are folk who have a message for our demographic. And if you want to hear a specific message, let me know and I'll find the guests. This podcast is also a conversation. We women know its value, we know how to do it, and we must perpetuate the art form. I try and let my guests have the greater say, and usually we fit in a good laugh or two. Listen in now to today's guest. Welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. I'm your host, Agnes Knowles. Mammogram screening, that dreadful machine determined to make a pancake out of our breast. I tend to say we tolerate it. In between times, we do. We do, don't we, friends? <laughs> we do self-checks. Today's guest found a golf ball in her breast. It took 17 months to get it off the course. During that time, she named it Tilly the Tumor. Breast cancer, Tilly the Tumor. A serious issue Katie Snyder met head-on with her inherent wit and playfulness. Pay attention. Any one of us could be next, and the reason for my chat with Katie today is twofold. To educate you, and maybe to worry you just enough that you keep doing those self-checks. Katie Snyder, welcome to the Boomer Woman's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting for me to be here, and I'm really looking forward to talking. Well, having gone through some of your talking points, I can't wait to learn what you, whatever you're going to share with us. So this is great. <laughs> education, education with some laughs is my favorite way to learn. So do you mind starting by telling us when and how you found Tilly? And uh, yeah, she seemed to move in without any invitation or even a how do you do? Yeah, she did come without an invitation, didn't she? <laughs> so... I should probably start by saying I have huge breasts and people think, always think, oh, that's great, but it's actually not. It comes with a lot of complications, one of which is that especially when they're dense and cystic the way mine were, self-checks become exceptionally difficult. And so I had always relied on annual checks with my OBGYN and annual mammograms, even though there were some recommendations to do it every other year. So what happened was uh, COVID. I had missed, uh, I had missed a check 
because my doctor got distracted and had to run out to a delivery halfway through. And knowing that two years was considered good enough, I skipped my mammogram that year too. So the one time that I ever missed those things, boom, I got cancer. And then I couldn't get a check when COVID had started because everything had closed down. But my best friend, who is a breast surgeon, said, I order you to check yourself in the shower today. So I did. And that's how I found Tilly. And even when I found a golf ball in my breast and checked to make sure I did not have a golf ball in the other breast, which I didn't, I still wasn't 100% convinced, although I have to say my pulse started racing and I ran out of the shower. I ran dripping into the bedroom and ordered my husband to feel my breast. So he said, yep, yep, this one's definitely different from that one. So I called my friend who said, you need to get into the hospital immediately, get an ultrasound. So unfortunately, the next day was Father's Day. So when I called the the hospital and spoke to the person who was covering for my regular doctor, he said, first of all, you have to have a mammogram. It's protocol. And second, we can't do it today. We'll have to do it on Monday. So... That was it. I managed to get in, not on Monday, because there was a lot of bureaucratic back and forth first, but I did get in on Tuesday. So should I continue or you want (laughs) to? Well, no, it's interesting that you mentioned like COVID and the timing and everything, because in my notes, I always come with notes. I talk about the fact that this was June 2020. COVID was brand new, which meant... Yes. You know, like everybody, the hospitals, the doctors, everybody was busy and and did that. Um, well, maybe we should now go to when you were, abs- or, you know, when they did absolutely define it as, yes, you have a cancer in your breast. You know, thinking about that in the time of COVID, it's like, oh, crap, this is going to be worse than usual. And then I guess I was going to ask what your first reaction was. You know, were you scared? Were you peed off? Or were you just generally still, I I can beat this? Well, initially, I was so full of adrenaline, it's hard to say how Mm -hmm. I felt. Um, My friend kept saying, it could be a cyst, it could be a cyst. But my body knew better. (laughs) And it kept shaking anyway. (laughs) So when I went in for that check on that uh, Tuesday, The first thing they did was a mammogram, which confirmed this looks suspiciously like cancer. And they did both breasts to be sure there were no surprises in the other breast, which there weren't. After that, the next thing they do is an ultrasound. And the ultrasound can tell you, is it solid? Is it liquid? Is it jagged? Is it smooth? And the way I thought of it was, Smooth, okay, jagged, yikes. You know, liquid, okay, solid, yikes. And basically I got double yikes. So the next thing they do after that is they send you to get a fine needle aspiration. So this was all boom, boom, boom in the same day. And at that point, which is good, because by that time you want answers and you don't want to have to wait. And the thing is, From a medical point of view, 
it's not an emergency, right? The cancer's been growing for a while. So as far as Tilly's concerned, she can just keep up the good work. But from a psychological point of view, it is an emergency. And you want to get answers as soon as possible. So the fine needle aspiration, first of all, everybody's masked. I should describe just trying to get into the hospital was an ordeal. They had the the whole lobby is blocked off by tables and they have people manning the tables. You go in, they ask you a whole series of questions about have you had this symptom? Have you had that symptom? And everybody's masked. I was actually wearing an ancient N95 from decades ago of doing asbestos work on the house because I thought, well, at least it'll fit me well. And they gave me a surgical mask. So I just put it on over the mask that I had. And then they give you a sticker. And the sticker basically says, she's okay to go into the hospital. So the guy who was doing the fine needle aspiration, first of all, they call it a fine needle, but it does not look fine to me. It looked robust, shall we say. And the, he did it under ultrasound guidance. So he's looking at Tilly. He's hovering over me so closely that I could see the little hairs that he hadn't bothered to shave because he's wearing a mask. So who cares if he shaves? So they're all like under the mask. And in the middle of the jab, my phone rings with my mother's ringtone. And everybody knew where I was. And so everybody else knew not to call except for my mother. And well, she knew not to call, but she was calling anyway. And the doctor looked at me and, and said, do you need to take that? So <laughs> I said, no, no, it's just my mother. I'll let it go to voicemail. You just keep doing what you're doing. So he ended up having to take three samples because the first one did not get enough cells. So Tilly was extremely reluctant to leave her lovely divot. Anyway, so he had to try again. And by this time, he'd hit some capillaries. Now there's blood in the way. So I was anesthetized. It didn't really hurt. Although I could feel him sticking the long needle all the way through the breast tissue to get to the heart of Tilly. Uh, and by the third time, he said, there's no point doing any more of this. I can tell by looking in the microscope, these are cancer cells, but I do not have enough material to be able to tell you what kind of cancer other than breast cancer, because there are a lot of different kinds of breast cancers. There's progesterone positive, there's estrogen positive, there's HER2 positive. And I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but what I had was triple negative, which means it wasn't any of those three things. But they could not tell that until the next step. So that's sort of the end of the discovery of Tilly and the confirmation that she was cancer. Okay. <laughs> You've already got me partly cringing, but also just holy crikey now when i read your profile you had a whole bunch of topics of conversation so i'm going to basically your talking points i'm basically going to do rapid fire now rapid fire means i'm going to say a word but you take as long as you want to explain is that okay sure 
Okay. Now you talked about core biopsy. Is that what you just had? Or is that something different? That followed a fine needle aspiration. So, okay, so what is what is a core bi biopsy? Okay. A the point of a core biopsy is to gather enough tumor cells to tell what kind of a tumor it is. So this is actually a good follow-on to the fine needle aspiration. The core biopsy was scheduled, I should say, for July 2nd. And you may not know, or you probably do, but your listeners may not know, that most hospitals in the States change over on July 1st. So any resident who was a first-year resident, now technically they're a second-year resident. So my senior resident, who was the person who greeted me for the core biopsy, had been on the job for exactly one day. And uh, now I have to say this was not his first rodeo because he had obviously been a resident for a while before he got to be senior resident. But nevertheless, when you're in a teaching hospital, if there's any way to avoid going in in July, go in in August. Uh, because then they've had a little more experience. And so it didn't really matter. I had already requested that an attending physician be the one to do the procedure, but he wasn't quite knowledgeable enough to know that five is the standard number of samples that they take when they do a core biopsy. And he told me it was two. So, okay, it was five instead of two. So the way it works is you lie on the side that's opposite the problem breast. The needle goes in from the side because it's a very long, big needle and they don't wanna puncture your lung. So I lay on my, Tilly was in my right breast, so I lay on my left side, they put a wedge behind you, like a, a couch cushion wedge, and I lay with my right arm behind it, so my right breast was fully exposed, and my arms draped over it. And the biopsy, like the fine needle aspiration, was also done under ultrasound. So the, the weapon or the corer um, is it, they, they gave me several shots of lidocaine first. And so initially, all I felt was pressure as the needle made it way, its way through me to Tilly. And then there was a loud click and I was impaled by a bolt shot from the needle. So, you know, I knew it was gonna be a fat needle. And so picture, but I didn't quite know how it worked. So picture a long fat needle where the last three quarters of an inch is a flat piece that extends out of the barrel of the needle. And then at the click, a piece of similar length shoots out of the barrel it's curved just enough to form sort of a cylinder with the flat side. So it carves through your lump like an apple core, which I swear is why it's called a core biopsy. And it's withdrawn, they stick it in some preservative and then they do the whole thing all over again. I just didn't realize the needle was going to be like the love child of a tiny vegetable peeler and an apple core shot from a crossbow. I have to say, this was, of everything that was done, the worst. Nothing else bothered me. I was asleep for surgery. Radiation was positively fun. Chemotherapy, I mostly dozed through. 
So what you've asked for is kind of scary because it's right at the beginning and you don't know that this is as bad as it gets. And it's all uphill uphill from here. Well, I'll be honest, as I typed out uh, core biopsy, the apple core was exactly what came to mind. And it was like, oh my God. Okay, I'm just gonna go in order here. Um, breast MRI. Okay. I should say one more thing. They do do another mammogram after they finish taking the samples because what they do is there's now a little hole where they took the samples. So they shoot a titanium sesame seed into the hole that's left behind. And I asked them if this was like to track me everywhere I go. And they said, no, it's really to track where the cancer was if it should disappear with treatment. So that was kind of hopeful. And then they do a mammogram to make sure that it hasn't been dislodged by anything. And then they wrap you up. So like in the old days before there were brassiers. So I was now bound and ice packed and they sent me home and said, okay, now don't do anything for the rest of the day and banish your dog. So there was really just a little bit more of a coda to that situation. So the breast MRI, they also did on both sides. They actually, they did the breast MRI before they did the core biopsy, just to make sure, like with the mammogram, that there were no nasty surprises anywhere because the, the MRI is, it, it's the gold standard, really, for finding lumpies and bumpies that shouldn't be there. So before you get into the room with the machine, A nurse sticks an IV in your arm for the contrast liquid, but they don't put anything in it. It, They just tape it down and you walk around with that in your arm um, because they don't want it to flop around. I also wondered if I needed to remove my wedding ring and the nurse said yes, but then the technicians when I got in said no, but by that time I'd already wrestled it off for the first time in 37 years. I was not gonna wrestle it back on. So a lot of people have had MRIs, including me, but I had never had a breast MRI. So the machine they use has a big hole for your body to go into. And for a breast MRI, you lie face down on what seems a little bit like a massage table because it's got a loop for your face to stick through as if you're about to get a massage. But it also has holes where your breasts go with just a bar in between so your breasts can dangle down unimpeded. So it was a little weird for a massage table, but okay. But also it wasn't claustrophobic the way they normally describe MRIs being because you just have your face in a massage table. So how bad could it be? So they put my arms to my sides. They put a shower cap on my head so my hairs wouldn't tickle me because at that point I still had enough hair to be extremely tickly. They give you earbuds so you can listen to your choice of music. Anyway, then they put in earplugs and they put my arms to my sides and they backed me up into the machine. And when they backed up, what it reminded me of more than anything is the Matterhorn ride at Disneyland. If you've ever been on the Matterhorn ride, it sort of goes ka-chunk, 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 it does not smoothly start going up the mountain. And this was just 
like that. So it sounded of machinery. It was a little bit jerky. And then I got back into the, it really wasn't a smooth ride. So now I'm in the machine. And once it gets going, it, the, it has sound effects, sort of like close encounters of the third kind. And they vary in pitch from treble to bass. They vary in speed. Sometimes they were so high, they were like a coloratura soprano. Um, and that those were almost machine gun speed, like the little spaceships from the movie. And then there'd be a long, loud bass, like the mothership has just appeared, if you remember that scene. And um, sometimes they sounded more like a very slow truck backing up because, you know, beep, 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 sort of alto. The, the reason for the variance, I asked, is that it depends on what kind of breast tissue it's going through. So they need to have all these different sounds have to do with what it's going to be going through. The whole thing took about 45 minutes. The last 15 minutes were with contrast. And unbeknownst to me, while they were arranging me, they had attached the IV in my arm to the contrast. So my first hint that they had done that was all of a sudden it felt, they said, okay, now we're going to do the contrast. And it felt cold as it flowed in. It didn't hurt. It was just, there it is. And then I was a little surprised that when they had warned me because I didn't know when I could breathe. So you're not supposed to take deep breaths because they don't want you moving around while they're trying to get some good shots of your breast. And so I was theoretically allowed to take shallow breaths throughout and they said, you can take a deep breath in between scans. But since I could never tell when the scan was happening and this first time they didn't warn me, I never knew when I can breathe. So basically I had a half an hour of extremely shallow breathing. Luckily, they told me that there would be a nine minute scan and a five minute scan with the contrast so I could figure out when to breathe. And boy, was that welcome. You know, oxygen never felt so good. Anyway, at the end, they slid me out of the hole and it was sort of like the Matterhorn in reverse. And that was the end of it. Now, I so there's a coda to this too, which is that I, well, first of all, it happened during COVID and so everybody was masked, but you can't have any metal in an MRI machine. And in fact, that was another one of my questions. I have a tooth implant. Do I have to have the dentist unscrew my tooth before I can have a breast MRI? And the answer is no, you don't have to worry about that. And the other thing was, I was in a research program for which they have you sign 17 pages of consent forms. And so as a result of that, it, I ended up getting six MRIs during the course of my treatment, and this is not usual. So this was just my first MRI, but the they have different techs who run it. And by the time I had my third MRI, it was a, a set of techs who, for some reason, were so meticulous, they made a real point of everything. Are you comfortable? Do we need to move anything? Okay, now you're going to have one and a half minutes of a scan. Now you can take a breath. 
Now you're gonna have a three minute scan. Now you can take a breath. At the end of it, I was so thrilled that, and I should also say, I wasn't wearing a mask because the masks have, you know, even the surgical masks have that little metal bar. And so they have special masks for the MRI machine. But what they said was the air circulation is so great to keep the machine cool that you really don't need to worry. We have not had anybody get COVID from this. So I didn't wear the mask and thank God, because I had enough trouble breathing as it was. But by the third MRI, I loved that team of MRI techs so much. We became like best friends. And luckily they were the team that I had from then on. So. Okay. Two thoughts came to mind is, first of all, having had an MRI, I know what it's like. You go through your entire head to toe about, oh, is there any metal anywhere? And and I also thought about my teeth. But um, the, the other thing is, if anybody's taking notes now, they've just said, tell them or ask them to tell me when I can breathe. Because <laughs> the very first thing, I'll put up with it all. Just tell me when I can breathe. Well, that's actually... Part of the reason that I, I've written a book, it's not yet published, it doesn't have a publisher, but that is part of the reason I want to publish it. Because nobody told me stuff like this in this kind of detail. And not everybody wants to know that kind of detail They, it, it because it's too scary to them. But to me, the more information, the better. And I wished I had known all this stuff beforehand. Well, you and I have that in common then, because that's exactly why you're on podcast. It's just like, women need to know this stuff. But uh, maybe it's just me that needs to know this stuff. I don't know. But uh, but listeners well, are there's getting... a lot of us out there. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Okay, so the next two things on the list are chemotherapy and radiation. We know those words so well. But is there always both? Is it usually one or the other? Can you and, and what does it entail? Okay. There is not always both. Some people don't get either. Some people get only radiation. But usually, if you're going to get, or I should say get surgery and radiation, everybody gets surgery. Some people get surgery and radiation. Some people get surgery and radiation and chemotherapy. And triple negative cancer requires chemotherapy that's much more drastic than the other kinds of breast cancer, because they have found, well, I, I guess I can't technically call them miracle cures, but let's just say they have found some wonderful chemotherapy for the other kinds of breast cancers. And those are all more common than triple negative. Triple negative is the least common. So the problem is that they haven't found those drugs yet for triple negative, although they're on the verge because it looks like immunotherapy may end up being the silver bullet, but they don't quite have that yet. And so they're still using a lot of the same drugs that they were using 30 years ago. What's changed about that is that they now do have what I would say are miracle cures in, in the anti-nausea field. I did not barf once. And you know, I was sort of looking forward to losing weight. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, that's a silver lining. And then, 
really lose weight. What a disappointment. I was not even nauseated for one day. So the experience of chemotherapy, even with the most heavy duty, drastic chemotherapy drugs is completely different today than what it used to be. So to back up, there's actually stuff you have to do before you start chemotherapy, if you're gonna do the really heavy duty chemotherapy. And the first thing they do is they implant a port. So a port is stuck a couple of inches under your collarbone on the opposite side of the breast where you have the tumor. And they put it there because they can use a catheter to deliver the chemotherapy into a large vein instead of the small ones in your arms. So it doesn't do as much damage to the veins and it also doesn't hurt as much. So I'm jumping ahead a little, but I, ha I had imagined the port sticking out of my skin like a spigot, you know, like a garden hose that you turn on and off, but it is not like that. It's a plastic button that's hollow. It's maybe three-eighths of an inch tall to half an inch tall, three-eighths of an inch in diameter. It's completely inserted under your skin. And so it just looks like a lump. And breast cancer ports are always made of plastic because you couldn't have metal for a breast MRI. And they want to be sure that you can have repeat MRIs. There are actually two incisions. The first one is in your neck because they have to insert a catheter. And that's also on the left side. So it's in the jugular on the opposite side of Tilly. And actually in boats, the port side is also the left side. So I was nautically correct. And it made it easy to remember, okay, this is the side it's going on. Then the catheter is attached to the port. So you've now got the two incisions, they meet, the catheter goes down to the port. It's Oh, let's see how to, I guess the best way to say it is the injections have to be done by Braille. So your infusionista puts two fingers on either side of the port and then sticks the needle that the chemotherapy is going to go through into the center of the port, which you have smeared with an anesthetic that's a topical anesthetic. It's called EMLA and you get instructed and it's the only one that does that. It's the only, there, there are no others. So it's that or suffer. And you're supposed to smear it on so it looks like toothpaste because it's white. And I kept wanting to call it Enya for the Irish folk singer. Um, and then when I, somehow I got confused again and then I started wanting to call it Lembas, which is the magical life-sustaining travel bread of the elves in Lord of the Rings. But it, it, that's, it's not it. It's always the same thing. It's always Emla. And you, since you have to put it on an hour before you start chemotherapy, and I couldn't count on doing that before I, you know, once I got to the hospital, I actually put it on and then covered it with saran wrap like I was sporting a small lidless casserole on my chest. It worked great though. I mean, the saran wrap stuck to the emla. I just had to make sure that there was enough emla that it didn't just come off 
when I removed the, the saran wrap. So all of this is before you can start chemotherapy. Then the chemotherapy day has a rhythm to it. The first thing that happens is you go to the hospital, they take your blood and they do it through the port. So they also take your vital signs, they weigh you, they measure how tall you are. And I was very disappointed to learn that I'm not as tall as I used to be. So here I am, I've now, I'm nervous. So I've got the pulse of a hummingbird. I am heavier, their scale weighs me heavier than my one at home and I'm short. So now I'm a short fat hummingbird. They take your blood so that they can make sure you're healthy enough to poison later on, which I always was, or almost always, not quite always, almost always. And then you go have your meeting with the oncologist and you have to repeat a lot of the same stuff all over again. They still want to weigh you. They still want to take your blood pressure, all of that. Then after you meet with your oncologist, you go back to the infusion center where, oh gosh, there's so many other things associated with this. Again, for me, after the blood draw, after the oncologist, you go back to the infusion center. Now I get a special seat in the infusion center because I was going to wear a cold cap. Now, I don't know if you've heard of cold caps, but I imagined that it was like a shower cap full of ice and that I was going to have to drag around a huge cooler full of ice because the nurses were going to be too busy to change my cold cap. And I would every half hour I was going to have ice dripping down my head and onto my clothing and my head was already cold and now I was going to have to change it. But this is not how it worked, at least at my hospital. They have a thing called a cap. And I, I guess I should say there is a reason for the cold caps and whatever kind you have, it's because it slows down the chemotherapy getting to the roots of your hair. And it makes it less likely that you will lose all your hair. Now you'll still lose some, but you don't lose as much. And that was absolutely true for me, even though I have very curly hair and the cold cap couldn't lie quite as close to my roots, although the less hair I had, the closer it lay. I guess that's another side benefit. But it's cold caps can be expensive, but there is actually a charitable organization called Hair to Stay, which gives subsidies to people who cannot afford cold caps. And it's also possible that insurance companies will start paying for it, although they weren't yet at the time that I was getting it. And to my knowledge, they're still not quite yet doing it. So I really knew that I wanted the cold cap. And the official cold cap, at least mine, the Dignicap, I think they think it's more dignified than an ice chest, is a very close-fitting helmet. Well, it's a gel holding, holding cap. The Gel is kept at 37 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So it is just above freezing. Then they put a soft helmet on top of it, I guess. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe to hold it on. Insulation. 
<laughs> yeah, before they do, and I never did ask why there were two helmets, but so one has the gel and before they even put it on you, they squirt your hair down with water. So you're sopping wet and that's the better to freeze them with. So they do that. They, they did put a towel so that uh, that did drip, but at least I had the towel so that I didn't get wet. They put the cold cap on. They start, the cold cap has big tubes hanging down like those Star Wars char characters that have the big fleshy tubes hanging off their heads. So I now felt like a popsicle. I looked like a Star Wars character. They hooked me up. And before they can start the machine, you have to give them a ticket. It's like, wait, I, I'm at the theater? I already have a front row seat. Why do I need to give you a ticket? But you do, because you have to give them a ticket to pay for each and every cold cap treatment, which is why they have the subsidies. So they hook you up. And at about the same time, I also started putting on cold mitts and cold booties. And that was because there are certain chemotherapy drugs that can cause peripheral neuropathy. I should also say, if this is ever too much detail, just stop me. No, it's like, great because you're covering off like everything on my list. So that's great. Okay. <laughs> All right. So taxanes, which are the first kind of drugs, uh, it's a type of drug and there are several different kinds of them. They are very likely to cause peripheral neuropathy which is where your feet and sometimes your hands can get kind of numb and tingly. But it's the same thing there as with freezing your head. If you can keep your hands and feet cold, you are less likely to get peripheral neuropathy and less likely to get it quite as seriously. So I just went to the internet and I got cold booties, which people tend to use, I guess, for treating sports injuries and discovered that it, it, I felt like it was giving me frostbite. So after the first time I realized I need to wear socks under this. And the cold mitts looked like oven mitts. So they didn't really hug my hand as closely as I needed them to, but I did everything I could to scrunch them down so that my hands stayed cold. The only problem with that is what are you going to do with yourself while you're getting chemotherapy? Because I couldn't really turn pages. I couldn't hold a stylus or, or I, I couldn't poke my Kindle to turn the page. I couldn't have earbuds while I was having the cold cap. So I couldn't listen to anything. And in fact, I could barely fit my glasses under the cold cap. But I did because I swore I was going to find a way to read and I purchased a stylus, which I then gripped between my thumb and the rest of my mitten so that I could take my fist and poke the pages to turn them. It, it turned out I ended up so nappy and, and snoozy during the treatment that I barely got anything read anyway. And usually it was the same paragraph over and over all day long. Anyway. So once you're all cold capped and ready to go, they now they stick the needle back in to give you an infusion. And I did always wonder why there was sort of a delay 
between when they would start that and when I arrived at the infusion center. And it's because they concoct every infusion you're going to get from scratch in the hospital pharmacy. Because even though when I started, I was only getting one kind of chemo, there are people getting for different kinds of cancers, not breast cancer. We're getting many, many kinds of chemotherapy. So they had, and they actually had a robot whom I will call Phoebe the pharmacist. And the robot delivered the bag that they hung from my infusion pole for my treatment. So they got that, they stuck the needle in, they had to do a blood draw to not actually to test the blood anymore, but to make sure that your port is still operating properly and that the catheter is where it, it ought to be for the chemotherapy. And then you get a half an hour of pre-medication. Like they give you pre-medication to get the medication. All right, so the, the pre-meds include Benadryl, steroids, uh, things to prevent an anaphylactic reaction, things to fight nausea, as well as a lot of salines. You're getting a lot of fluid at the same time as some anti-nausea drugs. And uh, I had also requested some, or actually they offered, and I said, yes, please, some lorazepam, which is a tranquilizer the first time because I was a reaser. And the Benadryl, I was pretty much out like a light. So... Um, I, I felt very woozy and woo-woo, but you don't feel the chemotherapy when it goes in, especially when it's going into the port. So you're just sort of lying there in a heated chair with a heated blanket, with a frozen head and frozen hands, trying to entertain yourself in between naps. And the cold cap made the whole thing last much, much longer than it ordinarily would because it was at most an hour and a half, two hours, depending on which kind of chemotherapy I was getting. But, and then there was a time where I did start getting peripheral neuropathy. So they switched my, me to carboplatin and is it called Abraxane, I think. Uh, I wrote the name down so I wouldn't forget it. And then of course I forgot it. You didn't, you didn't give them all names? <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> although the worst one I got, which happened after I had already had chemotherapy for three months, is doxorubicin, also known as adriamycin, and they call that one the red devil. And the reason they call that one the red devil is it is so toxic. This is one they have been using for 30 years. It kills everything. And so... That's what they wanted to do because they weren't getting enough of an effect on Tilly from all the other drugs that they had been giving me. And I can go back at some point to the immunotherapy, which most people do, just experience as a nothing. They don't even know they've had it. But it, I was one of the like one percenters where it wasn't good for me. So uh, when I got uh, so they, they combine adriamycin with cytoxan, which is just what it sounds like a toxin and at least toxin to Tilly. And this was after three months of chemotherapy and the, the red devil, I, I think they call it devil because it's, it's evil, but they call it red because it looks like Kool-Aid. And not only does it look like Kool-Aid, but when you pee, 
it looks like this really cheery cherry cough syrup. So that's why the red part. And because everybody calls it AC for short, I kept thinking air conditioning, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know. So I, I basically sailed through my first chemotherapy. I didn't get a lot of the side effects that you get. I did, they, they did warn me in the first infusion that because they were giving me steroid, which I'd never had before, that I was going to feel extremely energetic when it was all done all night long. And that's pretty much what happened. I mean, oh, you'd think it's a good thing to be energetic, but not if it means that you're not sleeping because you're a little too energetic. So let's see, what else can I say? The, oh, the, the drugs are, especially the AC, is so toxic that the nurses wear special garments, like a paper gown that they throw out the instant they're done sticking the bags on the, the hanger to make sure they've got the right thing. It takes two nurses and they read the codes on the computer and on the bag back and forth to each other like you're in a nuclear silo. You're about to launch. You need both people to turn the keys simultaneously. So they do. They inject it. Mostly it's in a drip, but adriamycin goes in. They inject it into the line that goes into the port. And they make sure that they're not splashed with this stuff that they're sticking into you. But what I didn't anticipate was how urgently I was going to have to pee because they're filling you full of all these fluids. You're attached, you're attached to your drip pole, you're attached by your head to the machine. I had to pee, I held it as long as I could because I didn't wanna bother a nurse because now I was going to have to be untethered from the machine. And you still have to to wheel your drip pole with you down the hall to the bathroom. But that part's not bad. The thing that was alarming is that you it's still, it's like the nuclear stuff, except now it's with your cold cap. You have seven minutes, once you're untethered, to get yourself out of the chair, stagger down the hallway, pee, get back and be tethered again to the machine. So it does help if you have a nurse escorting you. Because I was staggering like like I was drunk or something down the hallway. My thought was, could, could they not put you in a chair with a, a potty underneath you or something? Just let her go. <laughs> it's an interesting thought, but then your butt wouldn't be heated, would it? Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and the heating was really important. Oh, my goodness. I did have a couple of accidents. Luckily, I was wearing a tunic top. So I wasn't as embarrassed as I might have been. And I don't know why it took more than one accident to get me to start wearing Depends. But here's an advertisement for Depends. <laughs> <It just, laughs> that was great. I mean, it wasn't like I was going to let loose in it. But it meant that if there was a little bit of leakage, it would be okay. So let's see what else is there to tell you about chemotherapy? Can I just interrupt and ask you if, I mean, 
part of me has been cringing. Part of me has been laughing quietly to myself. Did you, did your sense of humor ever fail? I mean, you're hilarious about it now, but when it was going on. Okay. Well, when it was going on, there were definitely times that my funny bone was broken. And it was usually after I got the news, like I had another MRI and Tilly was the same size and that was very discouraging. But I had decided early on while I was waiting to get my fine needle aspiration and I was madly texting all my friends and family with an update on what was happening, I clearly was going to have to do something that went out to everybody at the same time. So I didn't have to say the same thing a dozen times. So what I did was I would get back from whatever procedure I had had and I would just write it down as completely in as much detail as I possibly could. And then if I couldn't make it funny right then, I'd go back to it in a few hours or the next day. Because I thought, you know, it's really painful for people who love you to hear this stuff. I mean, anybody who hears it feels like you do. It's, it's like watching the movie Get Out where it's a horror comedy. And so you're, you're sort of reading these emails that I sent out with your hands over your face, peeking between your fingers so you can see the words. So I think people have asked me, well, how do you be funny about this? And the answer is uh, don't have a filter. Most people have all kinds of secret thoughts that you think to yourself, you go, gosh, this sheet that's draped over my head while they're putting in my port looks just like a bicycle handle. But most people don't then say that. And so what I found was when I was describing things, I just said whatever I had thought without any filter. And it comes out funny if you do it that way. Even though it's not like I'm deliberately making a joke when I say it looks like a bicycle handle, it really looked like a bicycle handle. So a lot of this is just like that. You know, you look at your pee and you go, huh, that looks just like the cherry cough syrup that my grandfather used to give me when, you know, he was a pharmacist before he retired. And if you focus on that stuff, then it just, it gives you a little bit of distance. I think too in uh, not that I've had an experience nearly as serious as yours but a sense of humor and putting it out there with no filters it relaxes everybody else in the room a bit too like it just takes away a bit of their concern for you or their their tenseness because they're doing a really serious thing too yes so that yeah now one of your talking points was things people don't think about cancer treatment now you said like pets and pee now I think did you just cover off the pee part I definitely just covered the pee part (laughs) okay what's the thing about pets and anything else that we don't even dream of okay sure I have a dog and a cat and my cat likes to sleep with me and when she starts purring she's kneading my shoulder with her claws Well, you can't have your cat need you while she's purring because of the danger of infection 
when you're getting a kind of chemotherapy that depletes your white blood cells, which is how you protect yourself against infection. It's never occurred to me that I couldn't allow my cat to do that. And by the same token, my dog, who was a puppy, because A, I didn't anticipate COVID, and we got her five weeks before lockdown, and B, I didn't anticipate how I didn't anticipate cancer. I didn't anticipate that I would be weak. So I got this golden retriever who's an extremely athletic dog because I got an athletic type of golden retriever, not the big floofy ones that you see. They're sort of mellow and they're in the show ring. No, not her. And so I couldn't let her jump on me. I couldn't let her dislodge the port when I had just had surgery, when I was really quite weak from the that last chemotherapy because it's cumulative i was worried that she would jump on me in a frenzy of enthusiastic greeting and knock me over so um i i always ended up just sitting down because it was the easiest thing to do safest um, and pets don't understand so you can't explain to them, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to be gone for eight hours and I'm going to come back smelling funny. And there's just, you just can't explain. Why do I smell different? Why aren't I playing with you? What happened to tug of war? Why can't the cat need me or sleep on my head, which is where she really likes to sleep. Um, so... It's you need somebody that can exercise your pets if you can't. And you need to be careful because of infection. And none of these were th so puzzled pets, unexercised pets. And then they're just the regular things of pet ownership. So my dog, we were contractually obligated to her breeder not to spay her until she had had one heat because large dogs need their bones to continue growing and knit together properly. And you have to wait through at least one heat for that to happen. So of course she had her first heat while I was getting chemotherapy. And so we tried everything. First, we took one of my Depends and we cut a hole for her tail and we put her in that but that left little grains of the desiccant all over the place. We ordered some disposable doggy diapers for her and they were supposed to fit up dogs that were almost twice her size, but they didn't and they kept sliding down her butt. But we needed to make sure that she was not going to bleed on our furniture while my husband was taking me to the hospital. And so we got her some official washable diapers which you have to wash which is like oh my god why, is, why am i doing this so i got creative and i stuck one of the disposables that didn't fit and held it on with one of the washables that did fit and when my husband got back from dropping me at the hospital an hour later we had locked her in her crate and she like miss houdini had managed to extract the disposable diaper from the washable diaper and was chowing down on it. So it was shredded all over the crate that she was staying in. Anyway, there's stuff like that. 
that you just pets especially I think yeah you wouldn't think about um and especially I don't know how old your cat would be but if your cat's been needing you and cuddling you and all that sort of stuff for a couple of years it's like but what happened you know and as you say yes. you can't explain that so yes oh my goodness now you wrote your book and we're going to talk about that in a second the it opens on June 20th 2020 your hail and farewell is November 2nd 2021 so that's about a year and a half Yep. Is that an average time frame for this adventure? It is not. It's longer than most people experience. Is that because you're a triple negative? Yes, it is. And I was actually one of the very fortunate triple negative ones because you always tell doctors that when you hear hoofbeats, don't think zebra, think horse. But I was a zebra. And I was a zebra first because most triple negatives occur in younger women. Most triple negatives are much more aggressive than mine was. There is a measure of, a, it's called proliferation. It's how fast do the cells grow. And my measure, it's a KI-67. I don't know what that stands for. And it gives you a percentage. So like 60, 70, 80 is a fairly high proliferation rate that is normally associated with triple negative. Mine was not that. Mine was 10 to 30%, depending on which cells they were looking at. So on the one hand, this was great news because it meant that the cells weren't growing that fast. On the other hand, this was complicating because it also meant that the fast growing cells, which is what chemotherapy attacks, weren't growing so fast. So there wasn't gonna be the same kind of uptake and it wasn't going to completely kill Tilly off. And so that meant it had to go on for a really long time. And the other thing is there were other treatments that I got. So chemotherapy to shrink Tilly so they didn't have to cut out so much of my breast for surgery, then surgery, then radiation, which I actually kind of enjoyed, then more chemotherapy. But this time it was a very long course of oral chemotherapy. So I only went into the hospital once a month to get my blood tested, but I was taking six pills a day. And all of this was to prevent the sequel, the return of Tilly. So I think not everybody needs to worry about cancers coming back when they don't if they don't have triple negative. Okay, my, my first thought as you were talking about that is given the fact that I can see you right now and you look fabulous. So maybe that wasn't a zebra, it was a unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I also trusted my doctor. My best friend was a breast surgeon and a breast mm. cancer researcher. So I was in great hands. And okay, this is going to sound really weird, but I was completely relaxed most of the time during the course of treatment. I didn't have a lot of decisions to make. The doctors would tell me something. I'd say, okay, and that would be it. And I not having to make a lot of those choices was kind of relaxing. Although, as I say, I think that's probably fairly unusual. Well, it sounds to me like you had such faith in your team yes. that 
you were able to then go, okay, <laughs> I'm in good hands. They know what they're doing and they know more than me. So, um, yeah. Yes. There is one other unexpected thing that I'd like to mention because it really surprised me as much as the pee and the pets. And that is that when you get radiation, the purpose of radiation is to make the breast inhospitable. It's like, think of it as a garden and you're sowing it with salt. So nothing will grow there. And so that's what radiation does to your breast. But the other thing it does to your breast is it shrinks it and it lifts it. I actually had the surgeon ask me whether I wanted to have a breast reduction and lift on the other side so that they would match. And having gone my whole life with 32 double H breasts, I know that's just my clothing is all set up for that. So I don't actually know what size the Philly's former home is. I just know it's smaller than the other one. And so I, that happens to everybody. I just didn't know it in advance. Makes me, which makes sense when you really think about it, but that's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is where I usually ask guests if I can ask them a personal question, but we've pretty well covered the entire gamut. Um, but there is more to Katie Snyder than cancer survivor. Tell us about safaris and You've had some adventures by the sounds of it. I have. I wanted every year to take a vacation with the children where we did something unusual. And for many, many years, we didn't have the money to do that. So when we got a little bit of money, we would drive someplace where there was ordinarily skiing, but instead of skiing, we would do a sled dog ride, which is unusual. It's probably actually less expensive than skiing anyway. But by the time the kids left home, we had, and were out of college, we had a little more money. And when we had gotten married, we had had to decide whether to buy a house or go on safari. And practicality one, we bought a house. So we had to wait to go on safari for many, many years. And then it was, as far as I'm concerned, the most perfect vacation ever. I love animals. When you're on safari, you are completely immersed in their world. And I know that there are people who go, like they're making notches on a belt. I want to see the big five, which is like, you know, lions and leopards and stuff like that. What I wanted was to observe the animals in their natural habitat. And I think that may be because I'm a psychologist, I wanted to see how they acted. And so we would have a day where I'd say, okay, I just want to observe elephants. And we would go, we'd be in a safari vehicle, we would just park the car and watch the elephants for a day. And so as a result of doing that, the, when you're sitting still, you're not threatening. The elephants actually approached us, which you would otherwise not ever dare to do. And they came so close, the safari vehicles are open. If they had stuck their trunk in through the window, they could have touched me 
And I didn't know if I wanted them to touch me or I was afraid if they were going to touch me because they're wild animals and you don't know what they're going to do. But clearly they were smelling me. They were looking at me. They, they, their trunk is sort of like a multi-purpose tool. It picks stuff up. They drink water and squirt it into their mouth. They breathe through it. And so they point their trunk towards you when they're sniffing you. And I could smell them too. And people have asked me, what did it smell like? And about all I can say is it smells like the elephant house at the zoo. But um, being that close and watching them think about whether to approach, the elephant herds are run by a matriarch who has a lot of accumulated age and wisdom. And so you could see her, she'd shift from foot to foot, like, if you're thinking, you shift from side to side, you transfer your weight while you're thinking about it. And then she finally decided and approached the car. It's like you could see the thought bubble over her head. Or there was another time where the elephants were going down a hill to get to the river and the baby elephant just lay down. And you could see the mom going, ah, oh, Junior, come on. And she's nudging him with her trunk, like, get up. It is not nap time. It is bath time. So it was just a joy to see stuff like that. And and you've written books around that too, haven't you? Was there children's well, books or something? I am writing children's picture books about that and they need a publisher too. And they're, they're, I guess I should say they're nonfiction adjacent, but they effectively use the real animal behaviors to tell a story. So in Botswana, we observed a baby hyena who looked from her coloring to be about two months old. And all hyena babies live in a den that's too small to fit their mothers. Usually hyena mothers have no more than one to two cubs. And the mothers stick the babies where they'll be safe, but nobody can find them in this hole in the ground, and then they go off to hunt. And this one baby hyena did not want to nap. And so the mother was doing everything. Any of you who've had kids, you know how they try to stall. And so that's what this baby did. The mother would say, here, nurse. She'd hold up her leg. The baby would nurse for a minute. And then it would take off and start running around again. She would go, here, let me give you a bath. And she'd start licking the baby. And the baby would jump up and start running around again. And so as she did all these things, as I wrote a story that just described what happened. And I, I called it Nina Hyena, take a nap. So. Oh, that's great. We, we have to find the benefit you. of my grandchildren. Okay. Well, we still have to find you a publisher. <laughs> yes. Okay, so we came here because of cancer. Tell us about that book. It's called... It is called What to Expect When You're Expecting Breast Cancer. And okay. I've tried out different titles. I've called it Communiques from Cancerland. But because it is, it is the emails lightly edited that I sent out to my posse. I gathered them together. I wrote a little foreword that sort of describes 
the background to where I got. And then it, it starts in with the discovery of Tilly the tumor. So it reads like an epistolary novel. Each chapter is quite short. I mean, some of them are half a page. Some of them are 10 pages, but they, they all have title headings that may or may not tell you what it's about, like here today, gone tomorrow. So it's, I've, it's as informative as possible while still being lighthearted. I put an index at the end. So anybody who's read it who says, wait a minute, I want to go back and read about that adriamycin. Or I want to go back and read about this particular side effect. Because there are a lot of things that you can take action to avoid, like the cold cap avoids hair loss. The oral chemotherapy has... Uh, what's called hand-foot syndrome as a very common side effect. And so to avoid that, you soak your hands and feet in cold water 20 minutes twice a day. And then you slather it with moisturizer so that your skin doesn't get really, really cracked and dry or painful. And I managed to avoid it despite the fact that the dog drank the foot bath every single time. And she loved the moisturizer, which apparently had urea in it as a common ingredient. I don't know if it was like the real thing or synthetic, but she thought it was exceptionally tasty. So um, anyway, so I describe all that kind of stuff. And if you want to know hand foot syndrome and what did you do about it, you can go to the index and find out. And I must apologize then because you were covering off so many topics at the beginning that when you got to like the the, the mitts and the booties that you bought, I was oh. thinking that was part of that hand foot syndrome thing. It so. is not. Oh, okay. So people have to have the book and I'm going to pressure you that people need the book. So <laughs> you're going to have to get that out there. Okay, so you also have a an advance wait list for the book. Yes. If we get everybody to sign up on that, then perhaps that'll add a little bit more pressure. For listeners, I'm just going to add that I read this from your website, and I'm going to read it. Excerpts from this book have been shortlisted for the 2023 Fish Memorial Memoir Anthology Prize, won third place in the 2022 Women's National Book Association uh, Effie Lee Morris contest, runner up in the 2023 Wow Women on Writing contest, and they've been published on both Quali Bell and The Muffin, Wow's blog, which gets 30,000 unique visitors each month. I'd say those are like pretty good endorsements, <laughs> as well as this conversation. So the wait list is on my website, which has a really weird address because I never paid for a domain. So uh, am I supposed to like say what that is? Well, so normally I would suggest yes, but because you've already identified that it's slightly weird, it's Wix site, which is great. I always put the web links in the show notes. Oh, okay, good. And I'm going to put some specific notes in. You'll have a page on the website. You do have a page on the website. So uh, I will put specific links like to the sign up and the advanced sign up and like your wait list that sort of Great. thing on your page excellent okay and i take it you're still working on your social media presence oh well this is my first step social media as far as i'm concerned is worse than chemotherapy 
because <laughs> I'm, I never really had a Facebook page because as a psychologist, I was keeping a low profile. I didn't want clients finding me. I'm not sure I've ever posted a single word on my Facebook page. I just use it to read like what my daughter has posted or see pictures of my cousin's kids or something like that. Um, I finally signed up for LinkedIn. Like after my career is over, <laughs> because you, it, I didn't need LinkedIn to do therapy. I already had my referral sources who were doctors that knew me. And I, I've worked closely over the years with a lot of doctors. So actually understanding my care and explaining it was probably a little easier for me than it would be for a lot of other people. Well, once we get your books published, then we'll, uh, we'll help you out with that social media presence. <laughs> okay, listeners, if you have thoughts on today's show, please talk to us. Katie shared so much important information that has got to have spurred some, some thoughts. Uh, leave comments where you're listening, or if you're listening at the Boomer Woman's podcast at boomwithabang.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and talk to us there. Leave stars and reviews where you can. They help us grow. And share this episode with every woman you know. Not something we necessarily want to dwell on, but breast cancer could be a possibility for many of us. And as my mother used to say, forewarned is forearmed. Knowledge is rarely a bad thing. Katie Snyder, thank you for being my guest today and finding and sharing the humor in what must have been a scary journey. Well, thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> it's one of the few times that I'm really relieved that the cameras haven't been rolling on like it's not a, a, a video <laughs> podcast because of my faces and I'm cringing and my shoulders would go up <laughs> so thanks so much have a great rest of week thank you you too